0: and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid, and the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel A multitude of the heavenly host praising God, and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. I think Linus did a pretty good job there. I think I could just say amen, close us out in prayer, and we could probably head out into the world hearing a maybe more biblical-based message than many folks will leave church hearing today, unfortunately. Not here. I'm talking about elsewhere. Guys, I hope you enjoyed uh, last week's uh, introduction to this sermon series, Christmas Classics. But if you weren't with us last uh, week, I I do need to fill in a few blanks for you so so you understand a few things. uh, Primarily like why I'm wearing this lovely sweater today. So to get you caught up to speed, last week we introduced the idea that this sermon series was going to be about this, this concept that we can all agree on. That the world is very happy... To remove that message that you just heard Linus give, the world is all too happy to see that message kind of drift into the background. The world is really happy to remove Christ from Christmas. And the truth is, as much as we may not want to, to think this way, we probably don't have a whole lot of control over them doing this. We can't stop them if they want from in their own personal lives and in their own personal circles, taking Jesus out of his birthday party. But what we do get to have control over, right? As Christians, what we do get to have control over is our reaction. Right, often when we see someone removing Jesus from Christmas, removing Christ from Christmas, our, our immediate reaction is that we bristle and we get defensive. And we get our backs up. Perhaps we begin to want to shout. We raise our voice. And we know this entire time that we're justified in our reaction. The question I posed to you last week, though, is why are we so surprised? Again, we live in a world where where God and God's ways have been removed from just about every part of society. So again, we should not be surprised that they want to take Christ out of his own birthday party. When we expound further on this, again, the kind of question that I asked is, why are we so shocked? This is my personal stance, and I hope you guys have heard me say this before, that when I have a personal stance, you're under no obligation to agree with my personal stances. But for me, I choose to not be offended I choose to not be surprised by that cashier that wishes me happy holidays. Instead of bristling and instead of getting my back up and and talking down to the person, I'll, I'll smile. I look them in the eyes, I wish them a Merry Christmas, and I go on my way. You see, because my joy, it does not come from what's happening around me. That cashier does not get to determine if I have joy. Because my joy does not come from that one simple interaction, it means that my joy, it cannot so easily be shaken. Right? Where my joy comes from, my joy comes from Jesus. It, c- it comes from knowing what he has done in my life. It comes from knowing what he's going to do in my life, what he is doing now. It comes from seeing what he's doing in my family's lives. It comes from seeing what he's doing in our church. So while the world may swirl in all kinds of different directions... While the world certainly will at times seem dark and devoid of Jesus, the choice that I make for myself is to see my Jesus wrapped up in everything that the world wants to throw at me, especially this time of year. And this time of year, especially in the movies that I like to watch. We can all see Jesus, we can all see God's Word wrapped up in some of these classic movies. If our mindset is the proper one, if we're willing to look deep enough, if we know God's word intimately enough, we will see that through all of these Christmas classics that on the surface level are purely secular, that that maybe have no intended religious undertone, if we choose to view them from the correct angle and look at them from the proper perspective, what we will see is Jesus everywhere. I was reminded of Hebrews 12, 2. In the ESV it says this. It says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Many of us are probably more familiar with this in the NIV translation, where it says, Fixing our eyes on Jesus. The context of this verse, when we pull it out of Hebrews, is that if we we look to Jesus, if we set him as that goal off in the distance and we keep our eyes focused straight ahead, if our eyes are focused on Jesus, it's going to be much harder, much more difficult for us to be entangled and entrapped by the sins of the world. It'll keep us from being distracted as we look forward and we push towards Christ. But for me, fixing my eyes, it also means that everything that comes into my presence, everything that is going to come into my eyes and into my brain, has to filter through Jesus first. You've heard the saying of rose-colored glasses. That when we put on glasses with, with pink lenses in them... We all know what happens, that no matter what we look at, no matter what color that thing is, everything now becomes tinted in this hue of pink. For me, our Savior and God's word, it is the rose-colored glasses that I view the world through. That's what my world is filtered through. And what I found is that if you view the world in this way, you will see Jesus easier. You will find joy, something this world is badly in need of, easier. So yes, sometimes to everyone else, they may just see a silly Christmas movie. But I end up seeing the footprints of Jesus all throughout these stories. All right, so that was the recap. To transition now to this week, I couldn't think of a better way to do it than just say, okay, now we transition to this week. Christmas is the ultimate kind of family-gathering holiday. For a lot of people, it is the one time of year where family from all over the state or all over the country even will make the pilgrimage to one central location and spend time with each other. For a lot of people, if they were honest, this is the part of Christmas that they like the most. And for a handful of you, if you were honest, maybe it's the part that you like the least. But if it is your favorite time, that's wonderful. For some people, their favorite reason for the season, their favorite time of year, maybe it's the, the, the twinkling lights, and maybe it's the presents. Maybe it's even coming to Christmas Eve service and lighting a candle and singing Silent Night. But I know for a lot of people, this opportunity to reconnect with family these families that you don't get to see every single day, or spend time with with good friends who, who life has just turned into distant acquaintances, that reigniting these relationships may be something that is only going to happen on December 25th of this year. And when different families gather, they all have different traditions, different ways in which they like to celebrate. Again, maybe the tradition is just simply, where do you all reconnect? Where does the pilgrimage all end up? Maybe it's grandma's house. You all travel and you meet in that one special place. I know when we lived in Florida, we saw that a lot of you folks that live up north, your tradition is to take a vacation and head down south maybe for the week between Christmas and New Year's. And that's kind of the premise behind the Christmas classic that we're going to look at today. I use the word classic a bit loosely here uh, because this movie is maybe more of a modern classic. It's a tad bit newer than A Christmas Carol that we looked at last week. But the movie we look at today is the story of a young man named Kevin. And Kevin, I see some of you chuckled, you already know where this is going. Kevin is part of a big extended family. And this family has a grand plan on how they together are going to celebrate Christmas. You see, Kevin lives in Chicago, and all of his family, the aunts and the uncles, the cousins, brothers, sisters, everyone, they've decided that they are going to go to Paris for Christmas. The movie opens at this like grand palatial estate that Kevin and or Kevin's father owns. And I I never thought about it when I was a kid, but now that I'm a grown-up with bills and a family of my own. Kevin's dad has this giant house. He's paying for the whole entire family to go to Paris for Christmas. Kevin's dad was doing pretty good. But again, the movie opens at this palatial type of state, and Kevin and his entire family are there. They have this great big giant house. They have the whole family come, and everyone's going to spend the night at Kevin's father's house. That way, in the morning, they can all get up. They can all head to the airport together, make sure no one misses their flight. Everyone goes to bed that night eager with anticipation. And the next morning, there's an army of taxis waiting to take them to the airport. There is, of course, hustle, and there is, of course, bustle. And why is there so much hustle and bustle? It's because they all overslept. They all slept through their alarm, and frantically, they run out of the house, they throw their luggage into the cabs, they jump in, and they are off to the airport. But lo and behold, when little Kevin McAllister rolls out of bed he finds out that he's been left home alone. And Kevin is now a young man at home with no supervision in a time period that existed before cell phones. We have this conversation in my house a lot that so many of the, the TV shows and the movies that I grew up loving, they don't make any sense to my kids anymore. Right? Because now if, if, if I left Peyton home alone, she would just roll over, she'd pull out an iPad from somewhere, she would FaceTime me, Say, dad, you forgot me. I would send an Uber to pick her up and she'd be at the airport in 15 minutes. the, The movie would be over. If you know anything about the movie, you know that Kevin's problems, they've just begun. Kevin's father's house is going to fall prey to burglars. The wet bandits. And again, if you know the movie more accurately, the burglars are about to fall prey to Kevin McAllister. But Kevin is left at home to defend his father's house. And of course, even in this silly movie, there are still some lessons that they want to teach us. Kevin learns a lot about his need for family. You know, Kevin learns Hollywood's kind of version of the true meaning of Christmas. But again, if we look close enough, even at this silly secular movie, if God's word means enough to us, That even in this most bizarre and silly movie, we still can see God's word. Because again, we're watching them through these rose-colored glasses. When I watch Home Alone, I'm reminded of one particular piece of scripture. I'm reminded of the time that Jesus was also left home alone. It's in Luke chapter 2. And we will be in Luke almost the entire message today. So Luke chapter 2, it starts in verse 41... It says this. It says, Now his parents, the, the his here is Jesus, went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Again, I don't think we even need to squint very hard through our rose-colored glasses to connect the dots here on this one. We have a big extended family that is traveling for the, the biggest holiday of the year. In all of the commotion and in all of the the, the hustle and bustle in this large family group, everyone assumes that someone else has made sure that the young lad is with them. They get well into their journey before they realize that Jesus is missing. And when they do, the rest of their time is spent frantically trying to get back to their lost son. And when they find him, they find out that he's exactly where he should be. He's exactly where they should have gone and looked from the very beginning. He's in his father's house. Of course, Luke's recount of Jesus is is far superior to Kevin McAllister's. And again, I told you, Kevin did learn some very important lessons. And and we learned along with him about how, how family, that sometimes maybe we find cumbersome... ...or burdensome, that sometimes it's only in their absence that we ever learn to truly appreciate them. But what Luke just taught us is far superior. In one sentence here, in this one question... ...that Jesus poses to his mother, even at 12 years old, we learn something extremely important about Jesus... In this one question that that, that he speaks to his mother, we learn that Jesus knew that he was the Christ. That at 12 years old, he understood that he was the Son of God. And the truth that is displayed in this simple question posed to his mother is apparent to us. But there's truth that is also displayed in his actions. In his actions, as he he sat, and and it says he both asked questions questions. It says that he answered and and that he taught the teachers of Israel, and and it says that this astonished his parents. And when I read that and I hear that Mary and Joseph were astonished at what Jesus was, was doing, it's very easy for me to kind of look sideways at them, right? To look at Mary and Joseph and kind of be like, why are you so surprised I mean, if an angel shows up and calls you highly favored, tells you that the Son of God is growing in your womb, should you really be caught off guard that that Jesus is teaching in the temple courts? But maybe we shouldn't be so surprised that they were surprised by this. We do this all the time as well. We look at those closest to Jesus... And It's very easy for us to forget that they are men and they are women just like us We forget that for Mary and Joseph for example that the last decade of their life had been pretty quiet and pretty ordinary and That just like us even the most astonishing things that we've ever witnessed if we put enough time between the occurrence and where we are now It's just nature that we will slowly slip back into what is comfortable Or what is familiar or routine for us. For Mary and Joseph, since they had returned from Egypt, by all accounts, the last decade had been pretty normal for this family. Until this moment where all of a sudden they fear that they've lost the Son of God. The Son of God not even old enough yet to be considered a man. Uh, Still a year away from being able to, to celebrate his bar mitzvah. But he's sitting there and he's dispensing knowledge to those who are many times his senior. And when I think about it that way, and I remember that Mary and Joseph are just a man and a woman just like us. Astonished is probably not a strong enough word for how they felt. Think in that instant of seeing Jesus there. That all those memories came flooding back to them. The memories of the angelic visits. The memories of of not being able to find room in the inn and having to deliver in the manger. The the shepherds, the wise men, of of course in that moment they are astonished and they are overwhelmed. But it's verse 50. It's verse 50 that tells us they did not understand. And it's because of verse 50 that this sermon took a hard right turn and, and, and did not become what I set out for it to be. They did not understand is a pretty common saying that Jesus was going to have to become familiar with throughout his life. Jesus was going to have to come to become very familiar with the fact that that those who would be the closest to him. Those who he would reveal all of the secrets to. That they would still very often leave scratching their heads not understanding This would happen to Jesus time and time again. Just in Luke's gospel, there's several examples. First, in Luke chapter 9, we have this moment where, where Christ casts a demon out. And in verses 43 through 45, it says this. It says, all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples... Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And then in verse 45 it says, But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask about this saying. Right? We're not far away from where we were in just chapter 2, where Jesus was, was in the temple teaching as a young man, and now in chapter 9... He's here, he's with those closest to him. He says, guys, listen, this is what's going to happen. He says, pay attention, this is important. And those who knew him best, who were closest to him, they did not understand. We fast forward to chapter 18 in Luke's gospel. Verses 31 through 34. It says, and taking the twelve, the twelve closest to him. He said to them, see we are going up to Jerusalem... And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what he said. In this example, Jesus had just finished teaching the crowd in parables. And after he's done teaching and parables, he now just pulls those 12, those 12 disciples closest to him. And all of the the confusing stories or the the kind of backwards talking and the riddles, they stop. And he is very clear and he is very blunt. Again, he lays everything out. He says, guys, this is where we're going. He says, guys, this is what we're going to do. This is what is going to happen. And he even says, but don't worry because on the third day, it's all going to be okay. How much clearer could Christ possibly be in that moment? And it still says, they did not understand. Along the road to Emmaus. You remember this? After Christ had resurrected, two of Jesus' followers are, are walking down the road when unknowingly to them, they're approached by their resurrected Savior. And he asks them, he says, guys, what are you talking about? And they go on to explain to him all the news of the day, everything that had happened... ...about their teacher who they had followed into Jerusalem and how he was crucified. And then Jesus responds to them in Luke 24, verses 25 through 27. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory... And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I don't think these men were dumb. But Jesus calls them foolish. He says, you're foolish for not understanding what you've witnessed. Everything you've heard me teach. Everything since you were a wee little boy that they taught you about about Moses and the law. Everything that you memorized out of the prophets... It's all led to this one moment. It's led to when the Messiah would come and he would defeat death. And I know you're looking at me right now and you're saying this is a really long way to go from Kevin McAllister being left home alone. And knocking out some common crooks with paint cans to get to your point. But if those who followed Jesus into Jerusalem. If those who who, again looked him in the eyes and heard him teach. If those who raised him from a young lad, if those who saw him crucified, if sometimes they were unable to understand, then the question I have to ask myself is why so often do I think I have to have everything figured out? If the twelve disciples who watched miracles and did life with Jesus, if sometimes they found it hard to understand... Why so often am I so sure that I have it all figured out? If his own mother and father, who witnessed the miraculous conception and birth, who were visited by angels, if sometimes they were unable to understand, then why do I feel like I need to have an answer for everything? Perfectly clear, I am not telling you not to seek wisdom. I am certainly not telling you that acquiring knowledge is bad. But I could not shake the feeling as I sat down to try to write this message and I read verse 50 way back in chapter 2, that this was the message that I was to deliver today. I promise you, this is not the message I set out to write when I began. It's that verse, it's verse 50, and they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. It is not a call to be ignorant to God's word, right? It's not a call for us to justify ourselves and say, well, if if somebody like, I don't know, Peter could be confused every once in a while, then I'm just going to remain blissfully ignorant. No. God's word is a treasure trove of information. You've heard me say it before. It's an owner's manual guiding us to him helping us get through this life and accomplish the goal of growing the kingdom. God's word is the only source of truth that we have within its bindings are everything that we need. But I know that there are Christians, probably sitting in this room today, who become overwhelmed. Who tend to want to focus more on what they do not know, as opposed to focusing on what you already do. And then when we focus on what we do not know, we sit paralyzed. We sit in the dark, we sit in our doubt, and we sit in our shame about what we don't know. We consider the things that we have not yet mastered. And what happens in our paralysis is we are sitting and we are wasting our time. When we sit in doubt and when we sit in fear about the things that we still wrestle with, we are neglecting to do the very thing that we have been called to do with what knowledge we have already been given. I know that there are some of you in this room right now that if I called you up here and I passed the microphone off to you and just gave you a random subject and said, hey, can can you teach for 45 minutes about the worst king in Israel's history? I know that you could do it. I know that you're there. I am grateful that you are here. I'm grateful for, for your knowledge, for the example that you set for those who are still coming up behind you. I am so glad that we have you here and that your faith has matured but I also am very well aware that there are probably some people in this room that maybe the only thing you can tell me about your faith right now is that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son and that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And if that is you and that is all that you know at this moment, if that is all that you have to put your faith in and hang on to, I get to call you my brother or my sister in Christ. It's two verses later in John chapter 3. Where it tells me what is required if you don't want to be condemned. John 3.18 says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. If the belief... ...that God loves the world... ...and that he sent his only son, Jesus, to pay your debt. And if you have put your faith in him, your belief in him... ...if that means that you shall not be condemned... ...if this most basic knowledge... ...if this is the minimum standard of who gets to call themselves a Christian... ...the message that I believe God would like you to hear today, Christian... ...is that you already know enough to be a disciple... Okay, hear me. If you know John 3, 16, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you call him your Lord, if you've been baptized into him, then it's time to get up and go. There is no excuse to wait. As you go, you always continue to acquire knowledge. It's a great thing to wear out your Bible. It's a wonderful thing to mature in your faith. It's important that you learn to see the world in the same way, in the same light that your master does. But while you are doing those things, go out and spread the good news of Christmas. Go and tell everyone. If all you have to tell them is that God loves them, and that God sent his son to die for them, and that if they believe in him, they shall not perish, then go and spread that message. That voice of doubt that resounds in your head, you need to silence it. You need to send it to voicemail. If you're a Christian and the Holy Spirit resides in you, then you are prepared to be a disciple. And as a church, it's our job to sharpen you, to gather around you, to try to provide you with as many tools as you need so that you can become an even greater disciple. But I know that if you wait to be a disciple until you know everything, if you wait to get to the point that no one could ever stump you with a question if they bring it to you, the news I want to break for you today is that you will never get there. If you're afraid that you're going to put yourself out there and someone is going to ask you a question that you do not know the answer to, you need to practice this reply. I don't know. Do you want to maybe read the Bible and find out with me? It's all of you sitting in these pews... ...who have the greatest opportunity to grow the kingdom of God in your community. Every single person who calls themselves a Christian... ...should know the joy of leading someone to salvation. More baptisms should be happening around here... ...that are performed by you than are performed by me. I know the very first man that I ever baptized... It happened a long time before anyone called me minister... ...or called me a pastor... It was someone that I was just doing life with in a small group. It was someone who I was able to personally, one-on-one, share my testimony with. And he was able to watch the way that I lived my life. And because of that, he asked if I would baptize him. You've heard me say it a million times before. I am happy to leave church every single Sunday in soaking wet jeans. But I also want you to understand that I would much rather see many of you driving home uncomfortable with wet socks. Because your friend or your family member or your neighbor, they look to you as that example that drew them to Christ. Right? Because of that, they come to you and they ask you to lead them in that good confession. Do not let the fear of what you do not know keep you from telling everyone what you do know. Merry Christmas. Let's pray.